Welcome to the Future Returns Business Podcast Series. My name is Catherine Matthews at Aruda Corporate Alliances, and you can tune in anytime to listen to the stories of inspiring thought leaders as we go deeper into the rich cultural and strategic matrix of doing global business. You can like or share on SoundCloud or make comment at aruda.com. Thank you for listening. Today is Mr. Daniel Milky. Daniel is one of the pioneer disruptors in fresh and organic food offerings, choosing to use his branded cafes and juice bars as a bricks and mortar educational establishment for brain, gut, environmental, political, and social awareness raising. I sat with Daniel and sound engineer Josh Bevan to appreciate the hierarchy of needs, the spending, the behaviors of the millennials, the Gen Ys, and the Gen Zs. Daniel shares his thoughts on wellness and fitness, technology, and the political polarisation of the sharing economy. Gen Y, Daniel Milkey has a Bachelor of Health Sciences, double Masters in Accounting and Masters of Finance and worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. He now revels in controlling his own work schedule, which encompasses a 12 to 14 hour workday across several of the family's fresh food cafes and juice bars in Adelaide, South Australia. Daniel is not afraid to challenge himself, get out of his own comfort zone, nor question accepted media-fed and political dogma. Yet this young business entrepreneur is regularly called upon to speak on leadership at business and industry forums. He undertakes regular self-initiated learning and leadership courses such as those at Stanford University in 2015. He involves himself tirelessly at the community level. He donates fresh foods to the underprivileged and he mentors young millennials and he covertly educates his patrons about the wider social benefits of less processing and less packaging of foods. garden with Mr. Daniel Milkey, co-owner of Argos Cafe. Daniel, what is your competitive advantage in this particular industry? We do things differently. So our advantage doesn't come from providing food and a place for you to meet your friends. Uh, The advantage comes from, that's Lucky by the way. Who's Lucky? Uh, Lucky's our, our bird. He's one of our parrots in our Avery at the back here. So he's got his canary friends and a couple of parakeets as well, but he gets a bit jealous when people don't pay attention to him. So Lucky's a star as it is. I suppose Lucky's a, he's a competitive advantage in that way because he, you know, lots of parents come in and kids know they want to come and see Lucky. And I didn't believe it up until about a month ago when this little girl came in and she was two or three and she's like, Lucky, I want to see Lucky. And I'm like, okay, the Avery works. There are some other fantastic attributes that you have in this particular cafe. And I believe that you do a lot of recycling and educational sort of promotional type activities. Can you explain what they are? So in the non-traditional sense, we don't do things that correlate back to a financial income. So we took it upon ourselves about a year ago to look at how much waste we have. Um, and we took that pretty seriously. And now we're sitting at, for example, uh, about 80 to 82% recycled. Now, we don't actually advertise that as of yet, but we've done that for our benefit as well. And we'll let people know soon. We'll speak about the uh, proper stools in the bathrooms. So 
the idea of um, being able to teach people how they should sit on the toilet. And Proper is a company that came out and to align your colon so that you actually don't have any stress on your uh, large intestine. That there, you would never see a cafe purchase those things for their customers in the toilets. So how do you constantly add value to people where they won't expect it? And that's like what we call, you know, surprising and delighting. Not in the traditional sense of going up and having good service, but where do you surprise and delight when they didn't expect it? So this is in addition to the food that you're providing, you are also providing educational outcomes and trying to perhaps covertly educate your patrons. Would that be a good way to sum it up? I think the word covertly is actually very... Because you don't want to put anything in anyone's face. They don't like it. They want to make their own decisions. So even though we slowly have been getting rid of canola oil, for example, most people don't know about it, but canola oil is really, really bad for your health. So putting olive oil back in, rice bran oil back in, and coconut oil, but we don't want to go out there and go... We don't have any of this anymore, and these are the reasons why, because it scares people. They still want to be able to come in and just have their burger, but not think about it. So we reduce their cognitive load for them and just go, you know, we've made these decisions, we've been doing this for a year already, it's good for you, you're still enjoying it, don't worry. I'm trying to get my head around the fact that you've launched into this particular cafe that really does provide an alternative to just your ordinary cafe type burger scenario. What prompted you to go down this particular track of nutrition-based type foods? It's, I think it stems from myself and my sisters because it started for me first, we, I'm celiac, so everything had to be gluten-free. So I wanted to eat here. So of course, I'm going to make sure I'm taken care of. And then my sisters, are, out of my six sisters, there's three that are vegan. So then the vegan started occurring. But with that, then we, you know, two years into it, we hired a full-time nutritionist to help us develop the menus. So we could start moving people away from this idea of calorie counting instead of going into what's nutritionally dense foods are. Because there's no point of counting calories if they're empty calories. We're slowly getting more confident with pushing this information out. But we do still see, again, people want the easy road. So we have to provide the easy road for them and just do the right thing without them asking for it. How easy is it to go down that particular track, especially here in South Australia, where we do have, I suppose we've been accused of having a very closed mindset about how things should be done, especially in business. It's difficult and it's not. People are ready for it and they want to do the well for themselves. But in the same time, they still will compare what you do if you do if you want to provide organic foods and have it you know nutritionally nutritionally verified and they want to then compare you to the person down the road and they want to pay the same price so that's it's it's hard in that sense but i see this market definitely opening up more and more and it will be the norm i believe i mean now you can see that people are starting to put vegan options on their menus whereas 5 years ago that would be non-existent for South Australia, we are a little bit slower to, to get the ball rolling versus some of the eastern states. But we, our customer base is full of millennials and Gen Ys where they will expect something that they see on, um, in Seattle on Instagram tonight. We should have that on the menu next week. I'm going to bring Josh Bevan into this particular point. I've got a question for you, Daniel, regarding Gen Y. 
in particular smashed avocado, which was around about two months ago that um, Bernard Salt decided to bring this argument in. Being a Gen Y person myself, I mean, I know I don't have say $20 to spend on a smashed avocado breakfast. How many Gen Ys would you see come into your cafe to eat a smashed avocado on, on toast with eggs on a week, on a Saturday? How many would you say? Lots. And the smashed avocado, I think in that article he wrote, he did blow it out a little bit and he made it up to like $22 or something like that. You know, sensationalism. That's what it really was. But I think he missed the point entirely where Gen Y and millennials are looking for a lifestyle. They're no longer concerned about, especially millennials, of saving that money to buy their first house. They want to enjoy their life. Um, and they've seen what their parents have done and worked and worked and worked and not got a lot out of it. When they're now looking at it and going, hold on a second, I can rent, I can enjoy my time, I won't have repayments and I'll just go on holidays. Um, so there was a failure to see that, that it's different what we're expecting now from especially millennials I think you know Gen Y's on that teetering edge still uh, where we have still got the value set of our parents and trying to bring that into our how we see the world whereas millennials are going they're turning everything upside down they're just you know they don't like it they're not going to do it but yeah definitely you know a smashed avocado which we sell here for fourteen ninety, for example is a no problemo for people and traditionally, like you said, if my grandmother found out that I was paying $15 for avocado, she'd kill me. So, I know for myself, because I'm, I'm nearly 30, yeah. I know that even now, my dad would say, sorry, you spent how much on avocado on toast? Yeah. I think that it's maybe a trap that a lot of Gen Ys are falling into. I think maybe Bernard might have a little bit of a point that if we keep spending all our money on stuff like... You know, smashed avocado there, there will come a point when gen wires might reach their 50s and go actually i don't have a house and i've spent my money on travel and that's all fine but i think there might be a point where they might have wished they'd balanced it a bit better from what you're both saying i believe that even the food that we eat is a reflection of our values and culture. And, that, and I refer back to the interview that I had with Dr. Lindsay Falvey, who said the same thing. How we eat food and where we eat it reflects our values and our culture. So what is it that you're noticing about your patrons that reflect the political and economic climate, besides the smashed avocados scenario, but what do you notice about what they're saying or talking about in your cafe? The, the thing is they're not. They're in a point now, especially when we're talking about that demographic, they're not concerned with anything about what's in front of them right now. Um, it's very difficult to have conversations with, um, you know, I'm 30, so having conversations about politics, global politics, economics, finance, with some Gen Ys, and it's impossible to have that conversation with some millennials because it doesn't impact them now. And we, where we see a generational gap is planning for the future and doing the thing that's going to be good for our children. That doesn't exist anymore. It's what's good for me now, um, and when I have kids, and if I have kids, they'll sort it out themselves. So there's a, a, a huge cultural shift that we've seen from the early migrants to now these first, second generation Australians, where we've had no struggles. We don't have a, um, a memory of the recession because we were too young. 
So the only thing that frightens us is that we might not have a house, but most people just shrug their shoulders and then go, big deal, I'll deal with it then. I've got a, just another point and a comment which I'd like you to, to respond to. I've got an uncle who, he loves his coffee, he loves you know his olives, little nibbly bits to eat on a table. You know, I might go over to his place and he'll say, yeah, people are spending a fortune on this stuff when they go out. He said, when I was a kid growing up, he said, my grandma and my mother, they called it essentially peasants food you know you had you had your olives and your tomatoes and he said it was dirt cheap and he said now you can go to an expensive cafe or a restaurant and they'll bring out as, a, as an entree some olives and it'll cost you more than 20 bucks i reckon that there's been a cultural shift where people um, have gone gee we can make a lot of money out of this <laughs> look i when we talk about like i'm answering the questions from the gen y millennial point of view I, I use the same terms. I, I'm, peasant I'm a peasant eater. I am happy with rice and yogurt. I'm happy to eat the same thing for a week in, week out, but that was how I grew up. Um, what we're dealing with now is not that. And we're providing something that they want. And further to that point is like, as you know, the peasant food's available, but you can go pay $20, $25 for it, that's leading, that's led, and the price points are there are because this country pays so much for unskilled labor and you can have people that don't have any skill working in this in hospitality getting a really good wage that they can work for six months and afford to go on a holiday everywhere else in the world like unskilled labor is dirt cheap and the idea of that is so that your kids will get an education to level up whereas here we don't have that we have this we pay you really well why get an education and, and that's what's happening. My next point then, Daniel, is that what aspects of your family's cultural heritage have moulded your outlook in life? Definitely. Growing up in a Lebanese household is something of you work for the family, you've got a roof over your head, that's enough. There's none of this uh, be rewarded for something you haven't even done. Uh, and if you work really, really hard, well, so you should have. So that's how I was raised in the household. It was never, so this, is, this has shaped how we work and we've never thought about, oh, we've worked a whole year straight and not had a day off because that's what we were raised with. It's you do the work and you do what's best for the community and for your family, not for yourself. So was this entrepreneurial spirit, you think, genetic or was there some particular aspect in your life which ushered in these particular changes for you to decide to go into business that, and also prompted you to sort of go into business with your sister? Could you elaborate on your family business yeah. prior to going into Argos? So we grew up in delis and snack bars since we were kids. So we would be six, seven years old and then straight after school, straight into the shop with dad. Um, helping him stock, stock the fridges and the shelves and stuff like that. There was always this sense of understanding how money works and understanding the importance of what we do. I suppose it was my grandmother probably had the greatest influence on me because she was the one that was, was teaching me while I was very young, three and four, watching in between Ninja Turtle commercials, teaching me what, the importance of doing things a certain way. So it started at a very young age and I suppose business was natural for me, but when I came into finally realizing that um, I needed a bit more help with that in the education sense and going overseas to study, that really went, oh wow. That really sparked it then. 
and then I came back from that different again. So how do you measure your own success in life? For me, it's not about, I never ever talk about money. I hate money. For me, it's about how many people I can put on a path that they're ready for their life. So creating other leaders, and one of the first questions you'll get in an interview here at Argo will be is how you're leaving. So we can get you in and if you're good and you're motivated and you want to do these things for yourself, that's great. But how are you leaving? Because I don't want you here forever. You need to learn as much as you can from me. And that might take two or three years all up. But after that, you need to go because I can't teach you anymore. And it's this idea of investing in people for the betterment of themselves. So I don't like holding on to people. I think it's selfish. So. so how would you describe your style of leadership then? In the early days, it was definitely heroic. Uh, the industrial age, you know, the boss does everything and tells everyone what to do and you specialize in everything. Now it's much more collaborative approach and passing things out, taking other people's opinions in. And really, I can't handball things enough anymore because I can see the value in giving everyone else the ownership over their own areas and they have accountability and responsibility for themselves and that's how it should be. People are responsible for their lives so they need to be responsible for their work. Um, and the boss's job is to guide them and to mentor them but not to baby them. So do you see that style of leadership in people who are perhaps my age, you know, 50 plus, do you see that being evident in that style of collaborative leadership? In some areas, you're seeing it now pop up because they're seeing the advantage of it. And by advantage, we talk about money. They see that they have their uh, asset rich and cash flow rich, so they can help activate a younger generation. But it's very few and far between finding people that do it for the right reasons. I think we all have a responsibility if we're any of these, in any leadership role to educate ourselves, to educate the people under us because well, that's what we should be doing. It's just, otherwise it's a waste of time. That's, I don't know, that's how I think. Daniel, you and I had a conversation several years ago and, and I think you were lamenting about the fact that sometimes your voice is not being heard. What have you done to ensure that some of the things that are taking place, not only in your own life, but also within cafes and also what you're educating or how you're educating your, your patrons, etc. What are you doing that is different to ensure that that leadership quality still remains at the fore and that your voice is being heard above all the other noise of a small business owner? I think the important part here is to notice who can dictate policy and power play that. So building um, rapport with all those people that are decision makers, but doing it on the side. I've learned that it's no good to go out in the front line of things, that you need to garner support in the, uh, I don't know, what do you call them, in the hallways, I suppose, and garner that support so you can have that ear-to-ear -ear conversation and just you know drop in notes as you need it. That's worked well because I don't need the limelight and I don't care for it and I'm not too phased by that. We want what's best for the industry and what's best for the employees as well. So in terms of our staffing and making sure the right thing is done there, well, I don't shy away from an argument with another business owner. If they're doing the wrong thing and then I'll let them know. And that's the right thing to do. Does that include governments as well? Yeah, absolutely. Can you give me an example? Well, I've had many conversations with the ATO about how they treat their clients. And I think they've, they're finally starting to turn things around and understand that Australian citizens are their clients. They're not taxpayers. We're not pigs at a trough. 
So if you want people to be compliant, then start treating them the right way. And across the, across the board, we've got too many politicians and too many um, local councils treating the residents as they're, but the, the, how I say is consumer. And I hate the word consumer because I think consumer pig at a trough. So we are your customer. So treat us like your customers. I notice you also do a lot of self-initiated educational activities. Are there some things that come to the fore about some of the things that you've learnt and some of the takeaways that you receive when you attend conferences or in-house educational institutions and scholarships, courses, etc.? Key takeaways would be discipline. You have to be disciplined in what you're doing, but that goes hand in hand with being very focused on what you're doing. And I'm really bad at that. So being a specialist in that, because you can always find those people that will, in society will point out and say, oh, they're really, really intelligent and they're fantastic at what they do. That's so true for exactly that minor field that they work with. So being highly specialized is really important to be successful and to be, you know, recognized in your country and around the world for what you do. Uh, other take-homes would, would be to stay in the unknown I think is really, really important. Always putting yourself in a position of un being uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable is where you grow. As soon as you're stagnating and things are going really well, that scares me. I'm like, okay, something, something should be disrupted so we can do something and we can learn. All right, so what sort of um, informational technology uh, do you use and apply in your business? I'm a bit of a tech dinosaur, but I hear you know some staff saying that you're also using management apps to manage your events and activities each day. So yeah. what sort of social media and technology are you using in your own business? In terms of just pure tech stuff, um, we talk about the uh, mural augmented reality. So the butterfly wings outside um, on the side wall, instead of just being able to take a photo and upload that to Instagram or Snapchat, We've been working with a company in the US to augment them so when you take a photo or video, the butterfly wings come alive. So you're standing in front of wings that are flapping. Uh, the toilets have projectors in them. Uh, the tables along the side walls have um, air charges on them. So if your phone's air charge capable, you can have that. Uh, the shop's got new projectors going on outside the footpath. So we're constantly playing with tech on that side in terms of engagement with our um, our customers. With in-house, we've noticed we've had to shift away from what we like to do to what our staff respond to. You can't have systems anymore that they have to go onto a computer. Everything has to be app-driven. Uh, so we've moved uh, to our rostering to a company called Deputy. We've had an in-house app built because they don't respond to tasks that's orientated on pen and paper. So there's every area has an iPad. They're able to give feedback, to complete their tasks, to notify management of something. But we're creating an environment which it's easiest for the millennials to work in. So would you say that your cafe is purely for the millennials or do you, are your clients from all walks of life? It's, they're from everywhere. So the staffing is definitely, you know, the engine room is, a, you know, the plus 40s. Um, but the front of house and how we're perceived is definitely that Gen Y millennials. There's the, you'll never find anyone, I don't know if we hire anyone on the floor that's over 30. So they're very young. Um, and there's reasons for that. You know, I think people are attracted to go to places where there's lots of young people. But our customer base varies throughout the day. So it's, yeah, very diverse. It's certainly a vibrant 
cafe and I imagine that what you do in front of house also reflects your leadership as well. What leadership aspirations do you have, Daniel? Do you want to become a political leader? Uh, <laughs> I toy with this a lot of the time and I, I honestly feel like it will come later but it's going to come in a revolutionary style of uh, leadership because we can see what's happening across the globe now and Australia is not immune to the Brexits and the Trumps and it will happen here but things are too rosy at the moment here for that to occur. It will get worse and as it gets worse the people will rise but you always have to think about what revolution ever occurred to things changing and that's really hard to actually see was there actual change after a revolution. So definitely more grassroots I, I'm all about power to the people. I hate the idea of politicians being put in portfolios they've got no idea about. If you don't have an idea about education, then you don't have the portfolio. You have to have a master's or an, a PhD in that because you can be fooled by people quite easily. On reflection, your activity to try and get the Australian Football League to sponsor an ad around the Adelaide Oval to highlight the Gaza issue. On reflection, what did you learn from that exercise and did it achieve what you wanted in the first instance? That's, it was very interesting because I was not prepared for that. I thought this was very straightforward, you know, humanitarian cause, advertising, money, done. And then I learned that, oh, that's not how the world works. There's definitely a lot of lobby groups I was not aware of at the time and, and that's because of my n complete naivety that thinking people will do the right thing. It reached the same outcomes, if not better. But I was not ready for the backlash of it um, and there was a lot of uh, personal backlash on that um, as well as in the shop. But you just you understand that there's a group of people out there that are there to make it seem bigger than what it is. So... I definitely wouldn't shy away from doing something like that again, but this time I know how to go around it and be smarter at it. But yeah, it's, it surprised me because you, you think people will do the right thing, but unfortunately that's not how the world works. Just to finish up and summing up, doing business in South Australia, what are some key points that you would like to perhaps share with the audience about how to do business in South Australia? and? What would you like to see happen in the future? Doing business here, understand your regulations. Understand every single legality that affects your business. In the future, how I'd like to see that transformed is a one, one entry point where we can, any business can come to South Australia or start up here and there's one organisation that we go to and they do the work behind the scenes. I just want to walk in and go, this is what I'm going to be doing. And they go, great, we just need this information. We'll sort the rest out for you. Because the idea of government and every other group is to facilitate what we do, not hinder us. Understanding here, it's all about networking in South Australia. You need to understand that we come from a, a society that is, what school did you go to? And who do you know? And, and what cliques you have to be a part of? So you can do business here, but don't underestimate how important that is and getting out there and meeting the right people and connecting all the dots. Ideally, I think when our population increases, that will evaporate. Um, there's always going to be those things. And I'd like, I think in South Australia, you can do really well doing the things that no one talks about. So stay away from the wine industry, for example, because it's one of those things that everyone, South Australians, renowned for, but we're good at some other stuff as well. So 
you know, we've got to really focus on what we can do here and stop trying to be something we're not. I've actually got a, um, a point on that I'd like to make. A politician very well known in South Australia actually heard him say at Cheese Fest last year he did a, a little speech and he said look it's been a tough year for South Australia he said Holden is on its way out and he said the food industry is where we have to look to in South Australia wine cheese all this this is just brilliant and I'm thinking really I mean there's there's hundreds of people who have just lost their jobs and you're saying that wine and cheese is where we've got to put our faith <laughs> what, what do you have to say i think it's a complete lack of education absolutely i don't even know who the politician is but i think that's a very silly remark they should never ever be talking about things being bad here they should always be trying to lift confidence and then the, their focus should be on how are we educating business leaders here because we grow up in Adelaide in South Australia with a certain mindset and with that mindset it's very restricting thinking that we can't operate businesses on a global scale or we could never do something interstate well we need to take business leaders out and then go teach them how they can do this because we've got a lot of fantastic um, a lot of fantastic IP and produce here and just general ideas we can just sell out but we're not doing that because it's oh, you know, best case scenario, you go to Melbourne or Sydney. It's so rare to see people go, you know what, I'm moving overseas. I'm going away from here completely. So I'd like to see the government run programs where we take directors and CEOs and turn them into the leaders of the future, what they need to be, not how they're running now, because the way they're running now is not going to survive. So, yeah, pick them up, re-educate them, bring them back. Do you think they should be picking up some of the millennials who are at front of house of your particular cafe and doing the same as opposed to just the CEOs? Do you think that education actually starts much younger than that? Yeah. Well, we don't have a formalised, a real solid framework. I think Adelaide Uni is working on the entrepreneurial framework now. Um, if you want immediate change, I'd be doing the CEOs and stuff like that just to get them tinkering and thinking about how they could sell more. Um, but the millennials need to understand, and I'm picking on the millennials here, that not everyone's a winner. And that sometimes they're gonna have, they have to work hard for it to start with because we don't want to send people off and go, you know what, you tried and you're still fantastic. No, people come second, they lose. So try harder. And that's the mentality that people need to have more of uh, and that you have to sacrifice. So go out there, work hard, fail and fail and fail again because fail as we always say here is first attempt in learning so keep failing and that's okay and that's what we don't do here is it if you if you fail you get a big x next to your name you become bankrupt you're not allowed to do things for a long time whereas we want to encourage that so businesses go out and fail come back and try again and try again because it doesn't work so I would look to other models around the world. Daniel it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you I've known you for well over 10, 12 years and I've watched you, I shouldn't say grow, but your entrepreneurial spirit has always been there and just your ability to influence others uh, is quite phenomenal in a very positive way and I hope that uh, the people who are listening actually take away some of those messages that you've shared with us and thank you to Josh as well. Thank you Daniel. Thanks for having me, it was a pleasure so love to see you back.